Hi, this is Lucy Nalpathanchel, and I'm here with Katie Talarski, Senior Director of Storytelling for Connecticut Public. Hi, Katie. Hi, Lucy. Uh, We're here to talk about a new hour of programming that will replace our Wednesday weekly news roundtable. Starting January 13th, when you download this podcast, you'll still hear a focus on politics, but we're changing it up. Instead of a roundtable discussion with reporters and analysts, we're inviting elected officials from around our state to answer my questions and yours. And Lucy, that's been something you've been doing on Where We Live since the pandemic began, like your monthly check-ins with the governor. But who else will listeners hear each week? Well, I definitely want to continue talking to the governor regularly, but also to municipal leaders like mayors and selectmen. And of course, we'll continue to talk to leaders at the state capitol and from members of Connecticut's congressional delegation. Will reporters and analysts also be part of the show? Yep, you'll still hear some familiar voices to give us that analysis. There are a lot of great reporters who cover policymakers, both here in Connecticut and in Washington. And I want to lean on them to give us more context around the issues politicians are talking about. So if you're a news junkie, you can still get the latest in politics right here each week. Or you can subscribe to Where We Live on your favorite podcast app to get this episode and others focused on Connecticut, live conversations delivered right to you. Do you have a suggestion of who I should interview? Email us, live at ctpublic.org. One state can chart the course, not just for the next four years, but for the next generation. I just want to find uh, 11,780 votes. Republicans, on behalf of President Trump, plan to launch objections to the certification of the Electoral College in an attempt to overthrow our democracy. It wasn't a mistake. It was much more... Uh, criminal than that. The state of our state is strong and it's getting stronger. This is the Wheelhouse on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel, broadcasting remotely. In the mix, President-elect Joe Biden speaking in Georgia ahead of the state's key Senate races. President Trump trying to cajole, threaten, and bargain with Georgia's top elections official into changing the results of the state's presidential count. You also heard Connecticut Senator Chris Murphy decrying Republican lawmakers who are planning to challenge a vote by Congress to accept the results of the presidential election. That's later today. And Governor Ned Lamont from opening day of the General Assembly in 2020, when life was a lot simpler. Today is the start of the legislature's regular session. More on that later. I want to welcome to the panel Susan Bigelow, columnist for CT News Junkie. You can follow her at whatever Susan on Twitter. Susan, welcome back. Good morning. Joining us from the state capitol, Mark Pazniokas, who's the capitol bureau chief for the Connecticut Mirror. You can follow him at CT Mirror Paz. Hi, Mark. Good morning. And Colin McEnroe is here, host of The Colin McEnroe Show and a columnist at Hearst, Connecticut. Hi, Colin. Good morning, Lucy, Paz, and Susan. And you can join us, too, on Twitter at WNPR Wheelhouse. Well, the country is waiting for results in one of two Senate elections in Georgia. Democrats need to win both seats to tie with Republicans. And then Vice President-elect Kamala Harris would be the tiebreaker in the U.S. Senate. Now, Democrat Raphael Warnock narrowly defeated Republican Kelly Loeffler in one of the races. But in the other contest, Democrat John Ossoff held a very slim lead over Republican David Perdue. And the race is still too close to 
call this morning. Also, both President Trump and President-elect Biden have both traveled to Georgia to campaign on behalf of their party's Senate candidates. But did that really have an impact on these races? Colin, I'll start with you. Uh, Tell us what you've been watching in Georgia. Well, I I would say in answer to the last thing you said, yeah, it did have an impact. You know, look, if you want to lose an election, tell your base that their votes don't count and then start a civil war inside your own party. And that's what happened in Georgia. I mean, the message went out that votes uh, might might not be worth casting, which is not something it's like the opposite of get out the vote. I don't know. I don't know how you would phrase that, but it's the opposite of get out the vote. And then, yeah, then there's a civil war going on within the party, uh, you know, Mm -hmm. with Raffensperger on one side, Brian Kemp, the governor being sort of strangely sidelined a long time Trump alley, uh, ally was not invited to the rally. So you've got all of that going on. And I think underlying that, though, is a deeper problem. And the deeper problem is that you know the party's message has changed. Republicans run effectively when they when they talk about the economy, when they talk about job creation, um, you, you know, QAnon stuff. I mean, they've you know, uh, and and weird Trump conspiracy theories and actual attacks on the voting system. That's not really on brand for the party, and I don't think it's any kind of winning formula. So if they want to be more effective in the state they used to own they're going to have to change. And, and that sort of pyramids down, I guess, to, to the larger party, too. I mean, look, if, if these results hold, if Ossoff uh, actually does eke out this victory, first of all, it's going to be this amazing demographic shift in Georgia where a black man and a Jewish man won two Senate seats and tipped the entire Senate towards the incoming president. It, it ignites Biden's agenda. It allows him to get uh, things uh, things passed. And, you know, they're going to have to face the fact that, I mean, nationally, their allegiance to Donald Trump, what does it cost them? Well, I mean, when he came into office, they controlled both chambers. You know, they, they will lose the White House, the Senate and the House in, in the space of four years. And, and that's a high price to pay for their fealty to a guy who was leading them in the wrong direction. Mm. Uh, Susan, what are your thoughts? Uh, were you surprised uh, at what the election results are looking like this morning? What surprised me the most, I think, was that it seemed like the polls, the few polls that we actually saw ahead of time, were not bad, actually, considering mm-hmm. how, how p- terrible polling was before the presidential race. Um, polls suggested that it was going to be a tight race with Democrats slightly favored, and that's that seems to be what it was. So that was pretty amazing. Uh, I think the other big story, along from, from what Collins said about Republicans kind of Know, dynamiting their, themselves uh, was the uh, the incredibly strong uh, turnout efforts um, by Democrats in in Georgia. Uh, again, another a repeat of what we saw during the presidential race. Uh, even more so, uh, remarkable statistics where they're actually bringing new voters, people who didn't even vote in the presidential race, coming out to vote uh, for Democrats in uh, in this particular runoff. Uh, for which you have to give uh, Stacey Abrams quite a lot of credit. Uh, Georgia mm-hmm. uh, organizer and one-time gubernatorial candidate Stacey Abrams, a lot of credit for her ability to organize and turn out. Um, and it, it is remarkable to see uh, a state that has been so Republican uh, now being very much a swing state, being very much in play. This has to be lessons not just for uh, Republicans who have found that they are paying a price for Donald Trump, but for Democrats looking to compete 
in other so-called red states, how do you actually turn out the votes? Is it not is it not just that the uh, that the state is more Republican, or is it that that there has been not enough uh, efforts by Democrats to turn out the vote that exists? So I think a lot of other Southern states are looking at this, um, and Southern Democrats are looking at this and saying, "Well, why can't we do this in Mississippi? Why can't we do this in Louisiana or Texas?" Mm. Uh, Mark, a lot happening in Georgia in recent days. Of course, everyone's attention on that conversation that the president had uh, with fellow Republican Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger uh, to help find 11,780 votes. Uh, Can we just take a, a moment to talk about how bizarre this is and what the congressional delegation in Connecticut has been saying about it? The thing that's bizarre to me is that the president has taken us to this moment step by step by step so that, yes, it was the national story. But, you know, if George Herbert Walker Bush, uh, you know, when he was losing to Bill Clinton, if he had made such a phone call, this nation would have shut down, that this would have dominated the news cycles for days on end. And president has got us to the point where it's like wow okay this is this is a, another step too far but it but it that's what strikes me is that it's just <clears throat> you know it's it's just another step up uh, a staircase that gets higher and higher and and who the hell knows what's at the end of it mm. uh, you now, talked with uh go ahead mark no that you know and the, the thing I took away from Georgia, it's a reminder of uh, th- this president does one thing consistently, and that is he speaks to his base. He is he is he has done so throughout his presidency. His major weakness, as far as uh, a political creature looking at his own reelection or helping his party, is that he does nothing to expand his base. He is great. At, at getting his base energized, of, of getting the true believers to, to be enthused and jump up and down. Uh, and of course, the other thing about him is he is um, the, the greatest at energizing the Democratic base. You know, the Democrats have never had an organizer uh, like Donald Trump. We have seen that in Connecticut. And I'm guessing that Stacey Abrams in Georgia might say she got a big assist from the president of the United States on her efforts to turn out the vote. Mm. You talked with uh, Connecticut Republicans about uh, president's uh, unfounded claims that this uh, election uh, is fraudulent. And something someone uh, said to you in the article is, you know, he's not going to disappear after January 20th. What are the ramifications on the party, the Republican Party and this country uh, with the words and the actions that he has taken over the years, Mark? Well, so any Republican has to keep in the back of his or her mind that this is a guy who can turn the base against you. Um, and in a primary, you know, this is always the fear. And and that's why you saw the incredible caution on a lot of Republicans. I mean, certainly in the last few days, you saw more Republican senators come forward, uh, including, you know, Tom Cotton of Arkansas, who was one of the president's strongest allies. And the, you saw what happened. The, you know, I mean, Tom Cotton said, the election's over. This is how it works. And, you know, just stop it. This is, there's no end game here other than Joe Biden becoming president of the United States on January 20th. And the president 
immediately turned on Tom Cotton, as he has on others, threatening them with uh, primaries. Um, and so he is, you know, I mean, I, I'd quoted Liz Karantowicz as a Republican operative in that story. And, you know, she made the, the point that I think everybody would agree with is he is a disruptor. That's what propelled him to office. So we should not be surprised that he is continuing to be disruptive and he will continue to do so. You know, this is not a guy who's going to retire to Florida and start raising money for his presidential library. You know, I mean, it, we, it's, you know, it, this is not, you know, we look at all the transitions. We look at um, all the compliments that the Obama people have heaped upon George W. Bush because Obama took office at one of the most vulnerable times of any new president where the, the economy was in free fall. And George W. Bush could have sabotaged Obama not by attacking him, not by withholding transition advice, but simply by failing to act when the economy imploded. You know, he could have let, you know, two of the big three automakers go. He did not do that. You know, he acted like a chief executive of the United States. And, you know, the Obama people um, are endlessly, you know, grateful about that. That's the way it's supposed to work. Mm. Uh, Colin, I, I asked Mark about the ramifications of Trump after Inauguration Day. We're seeing that play out today, later today, uh, this ceremonial counting of electoral college votes in this group of 13 that will be voting against it. Yeah, I don't know what this does to the brand of the party. And it's not just a group of 13 or however many it turns out to be, but it's, you know, more than 100 members of the House. I mean, obviously, this goes nowhere. It doesn't really accomplish anything other than create uh, another little bit of a snag in the record. Uh, but uh, it's not going to interfere with the certification of Biden's victory. And you just sort of wonder what kind of brand this is. You know, I mean, I think one thing that it does is kind of tip over into other events. Events. I mean, Kelly Leffler has not conceded to Warnock yet, and I, I don't imagine that she, at least maybe she did in the last two hours. <laughs> I don't know. But last, last time I knew she hadn't done it. And, and I don't think she will for a long time because that's kind of the new thing, right? You get beaten and you don't admit it. Uh, and God only knows what Purdue will do if he's, you know, narrowly edged by, uh, by Ossoff. But, you know, this, it's not a good brand. Once again, to return to what I, I said before, look, when Trump came into office, the Speaker of the House was Paul Ryan. And I didn't really agree with any of Paul Ryan's ideas, but I knew what they were. You know, you knew what Republicanism per Paul Ryan and other symbols of, of Republican policy, what that would be. And, and I think that one of the things that's happened now is a, this is a party that is not prominently associated with any ideas at all. Uh, Trump has done almost nothing at the policy level in four years. Uh, there is no wall built. Uh, there is no replacement for the Affordable Care Act. Uh, there's no massive uh, infrastructure uh, rejiggering. You know, most of the stuff that he talked about, his big initiatives never happened. There was a tax cut that favored the rich, and that's about it. So I, I think the way that it hurts the party the most after they go through this exercise today and once again kind of prove how many of them either don't believe in democracy or are just, you know, fawning coach dogs to Trump, even uh, as he, you know, sits in, in the bunker for the last two weeks. I mean, Ted Cruz, I mean, 
Trump insulted his wife's appearance and then said that his father was involved in the assassination of JFK. And Ted Cruz is going to the mat for this guy. Um, and I, I just think ultimately they are going to have to regroup and become, again, a party of some ideas, which I don't think they are now. Mm, Susan, I want to hear your take. Well, I mean, to echo what, what Colin said, the Republicans, they right now they they have a sort of a split personality. Um you have some Republicans in Washington, uh, more establishment types, who really do want to get back to talking about policy, I feel. Um, but then you have this fringe, uh, which it it's it feels like the sort of QAnon, um, Trumpist uh, kind of people who bought into the kind of per- cult of personality of Trump. Um, what they're going to do doesn't it, – it's, I have no idea where they're going to go after this. Uh I feel like they're going to stir, they're going to try and they're going to try and follow Trump as much as they can. Um, depends on what he does, of course. He's going to continue to disrupt everything, but it doesn't seem like they're very interested in helping out the Republican Party so much at this point. Um, a lot of them feel the Republican Party has betrayed them. So right now, you have this this very large and very powerful faction of the Republican Party uh, that hates the Republican Party and. What are they going to do? How are they going to disrupt races? How are they going to uh, make life difficult for anybody who's actually trying to govern as a Republican? Uh, Republicans are in for a very difficult couple of years where they're just at war with one another over what's happened in the past four years. It's going to be pretty brutal, uh, going to be pretty brutal for them. What's happening today is just going to be one one incident, uh, maybe a defining incident for a lot of these these members um, who are either objecting to the count or who are going to vote to uh, to uphold it. Um, it's going to it's going to be something that they're going to have to live with and they're going to have to face that particular that particular faction. They're going to have to face the base um, mm. and either suffer the consequences or not. But it's going to be pretty bad. It's going to be something that um, they're going to have to really try hard to outrun. That's Susan Bigelow, columnist for CT News Junkie here on The Wheelhouse with Mark Pazniokas, Capitol Bureau Chief for the Connecticut Mirror, and Colin McEnroe, host of The Colin McEnroe Show and a columnist at Hearst, Connecticut. Coming up, state lawmakers head back to work on Zoom. Our panelists preview the session. That's after the break. This is The Wheelhouse on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. On our panel today, Susan Bigelow, columnist for CT News Junkie. Mark Pazniokas, Capitol Bureau Chief for the Connecticut Mirror, joining us from the Capitol. And Colin McEnroe, host of The Colin McEnroe Show and a columnist at Hearst, Connecticut. As I mentioned earlier, it's the first day of the Connecticut General Assembly's regular session. Uh, panelists Susan Bigelow and Mark Pazniokas both previewed the session recently. Susan's op-ed in CT News Junkie titled, governing by Zoom. We know COVID is still with us. So Susan, what do you expect to see and hear this session? Well, it's going to be very different um, from sessions that we've seen in the past. Uh, I think the, mo- the, the most visible change is that we're not going to see uh, lawmakers meeting in person either uh, to, uh, to debate or to vote or to, uh, to hold committee hearings. So we're not going to see like the kind of uh, big public hearings where 
uh, you might have a lot of members of the public coming up to testify to give their opinions. Um, those are all going to be held virtually. Uh, the one time where we're going to, it's almost a little bit normal where we're going to see a lot of members of the General Assembly together, it's going to be later today when they all are sworn, or they all start the session, they're all sworn in at, uh, but it's going to be outside, it's going to be in the North Lawn of the Capitol, it's not going to be actually inside the chambers. Um, so it's going to be virtual government, it's going to be very strange and different, and there's a lot of concern about whether or not people are going to be able to, especially during the public hearings, make their opinions known. Um, if they don't have access to the internet, if they can't post virtual testimony or they can't uh, call into the Zoom meeting or whatever it might be, uh, how are they going to be able to actually give their opinions? So that's going to be the, the biggest change we're going to see is just, just a big change in how the, the legislature looks and acts. Uh, Mark, I mentioned you're at the Capitol. You're going to be covering opening day and, and all the other uh, festivities, so to speak. I understand the Senate will have seats outside, but House members will be standing. Yes, the Senate is uh, roughly replicating uh, their seating inside the chamber. They'll be uh, on the south parking lot between you know, the governor's parking space and the LOB, and then the House people will be on the other side of the building. Um, you know, this is going to be a virtual session for part of it. This is really going to be a hybrid. Um, the, the way the legislative session works, it's front loaded with committee work. You know, bills are filed. Uh, they're reviewed by committees. They're subject to public hearings. All that will be indeed virtual. Um, the General Assembly has evolved to the point where they're they are in a position to do this in a way that they couldn't have done it years ago. And, and, you know, they take a lot of public testimony uh, in writing, you know, it could be via email. And if you look at a public hearing uh, agenda and you look up the testimony, you find a lot of written testimony um, and the legislators, uh, they do read that. So it's the, the public's only venue is not, to show up at the legislative office building and sit here for hours on end waiting to be called. Um, but it will be different. Now, when they actually get to the point in the session where bills are on the House and Senate calendar, that's where it will be more of a hybrid. Um, they will be uh, debating in the chambers. It'll be constrained as to how many people can be in there. Um, the two special sessions we had in July and September were really dress rehearsals for that. Um, so you you will see legislators in person debating, but you will see them doing that in largely empty chambers. Um, the House is set up technologically that they can vote from their offices in legislative office building. The Senate does not have that function as of yet. So what we saw during the special session is this sort of choreographed entry of lawmakers uh, entering from either side of the chamber, going to their desk, pressing their vote button, and then exiting from the front, you know, mm. all keeping a, a social distance. So, so yeah, I would really call it a, a hybrid, but, but Susan's absolutely right. For the, the first weeks and months, it, it's going to be virtual. So how's it feel to be in the building, Mark? Um, you know, there was a nice uh, welcome back. We miss you sign up. Uh, that was right before they took my temperature. Um, and, you know, I've been in and out of the Capitol throughout this. Um, the, if you are a member of the Capitol Press Corps, we have workspace here, as, as you guys know, up on the fourth floor, mm -hmm. uh, which, by the way, is very clean right now. I've never seen it this clean. Um, and so we have a key card to the building. 
And, you know, so I, like I said, I have been here occasionally to work here certain times when the governor has had something outdoors. He did so more when the weather was warm. Um, but yeah, it's going to be a, a different vibe. Opening day normally is, you know, it's a little bit of a high school graduation, uh, you know, a wedding, a baptism. It's, it's, it's a real family vibe. You know, there are 21 new House members who were elected. There were three new senators. And on a normal opening day, this is a really big deal for them, you know, yes. and it's, it's kind of cool. Um, it, it humanizes the place. Um, we're going to have a new House Speaker elected, Matt Ritter, his father, uh, a former House Speaker, will be administering the, the oath. Um, so again, that will be a nice little family moment. Um, and then and then we'll go inside. Um, there is going to be um, the rules that they negotiated to conduct this session. Um, there was consensus on three of the four caucuses, but the Senate Republican leader who's new, Senator Kevin Kelly, uh, still has reservations. I don't think he's going to make a, a floor fight or a parking lot fight about it. <laughs> but I, I, I don't believe he's going to be voting uh, for the rules that they negotiated. Mm. He's, he's concerned about lack of public access. Colin, talk more about that vibe. You've been inside that building on opening day. Uh, we've heard that you know Governor Lamont his his state of the state will be was already pre recorded, and you know just the idea that how much will they be able to get done uh, through a Zoom in this manner? Yeah, well, in, in answer to the first part of that, I, I think I want to just echo what Paz said, which is you know for the for some people this is a really exciting day. If you're yeah. Eleni Cavros de Gras and you're being sworn in as a state rep after trying you know really hard to win an election in a fairly tough district, this is a thrilling day for these people. We can we can maybe get a little jaded about this over the years, uh, and I kind of hope that the protests and stuff like that don't really take away too much uh, from because we want people to be excited about government. We want people to believe that they can make a difference by participating in government. Um, I, I think in terms of what can they get done, they have to get certain things done. And I'm not sure that this is going to make it harder. To be honest, I, I've always believed that the worst thing about the General Assembly is its process. You know, I mean, I think its process makes it harder to get things done. So it's a drastic change in the pro process might not be so bad. Um, they're going to have to find some new revenue sources. I mean, they got, I think the rainy day fund is about $3.1 billion. And I think Lamont gets some brownie points for like holding off on ideas to tap into it for uh, other solutions, but they still need new revenue. You know, they're, I think they're going to pass uh, recreational marijuana and probably some kind of sports betting, sports gambling uh, kind of thing. Um, I think maybe one of the toughest things that they face is they've, we're going to be talking about the cities in Connecticut in just a second, but let me just talk about it now. The cities are in tough shape, and some of the institutions that make cities work well, arts institutions in particular, are in tough shape. And, and that may be an area where there isn't an obvious solution. And there isn't a solution that doesn't cost money. But I don't think you can just expect Connecticut cities to bounce back once, you know, there's some kind of fairly full vaccination load. I think some of the damage that has been done is going to have to be pieced back together. It's going to have to be fixed with, with Gorilla Glue. Uh, and, and that's going to be subtle and hard and, and important. And that might be the kind of area where, to Susan's point, you know, doing stuff by Zoom might be uh, kind of hard. But as Paz is pointing out, they're not always going to be doing it by Zoom. And you mentioned protests. So uh, who else will be showing up today, Colin? Well, it's some kind of melange 
of um, anti-vaxxers and people who've been objecting to all COVID restrictions by the government for a long time, plus some kind of Connecticut offshoot of the people who are going to Washington today to protest on behalf of, of President Trump. It'll be some mix of those. Um, my experience, and I have kind of kept a close eye on some of these insurgency groups and and uh, and opposition groups. They tend to promise more than they can deliver. They they talk about you know thousands of people showing up and you know dozens of people show up. Um, so I, and I don't know what it'll be like today because it's a little bit more of a broad based coalition. But but yeah, they're going to be there. They're going to be making noise. Um, one of the featured speakers of the protest rally today was supposed to be Dr. Stella Emanuel. You may remember her from, I think it was called the White Coat Summit or something like that. But she was for a while kind of part of, uh, you know, Trump's medical kitchen cabinet on COVID. And she's the person who believed that you could get physically sick from having dreams about having sex with witches and and she had old demon sperm thing and and also was a hydroxychloroquine person so anyway she canceled on them stella emmanuel had something better to do than go to connecticut today and speak to those people i give you a sense of where they are in the pecking order even of craziness mentioned city and to hear Susan Bigelow talk about our next topic of the last week. We were just talking about the 2022 gubernatorial race on the wheelhouse last week, and the 2018 Republican candidate for governor, Bob Stefanowski, wrote an opinion article for the Wall Street Journal. He slammed the city of Hartford as a dangerous, poor mess with bad schools. He blames Democrats who run city government. And of course, this article got a lot of attention on social media, both for and against Susan. Tell me your reaction to Bob Stefanowski's points. Oh, boy. Uh, well, where to begin? Yeah, where, where to even start with this? Uh, I mean, the, the title of this this uh, this opinion article that he he wrote in the, the Wall Street Journal was what isn't the matter with Hartford? Uh, but what isn't the matter with this article? There's there's just so much to choose from. Um, it, it feels like it feels like it, it's so it's so out of touch if you are someone who has followed even even just a little bit what's going on in cities and why cities have the problems that they do um, in connecticut our cities are very they're very land poor they're very small they don't have a lot of room for redevelopment um, because of the way that our system of towns works uh, a lot of our cities um, there's their school districts are very small. They're, they're sort of concentrated pockets of poverty. That's the legacy of segregation and redlining. There's a lot of historical stuff that goes goes into this, into why cities are the way that they are. Uh, but this is just sort of a, well, let's just blame, uh, Stefanowski was just saying, well, let's just blame Democrats for this. Um, and let's just blame the cities for, for just being bad places. It sounds like something that somebody would have said in like 1990 or so, um, I can remember people having these, making these exact arguments about the cities back then, um, just saying, well, the cities, this is a sort of suburbanite way of saying the cities are bad. Do not go there. Um, it's, it's awful. You're going to get robbed. You're going to get killed. And uh, having no actual understanding of what the cities are, what they're like, or who lives there. Um, really, it was, it was sort of a, the, art, the article was designed kind of to infuriate people who live in cities and who like cities. Um, but of course, for, for Bob Stefanowski, that doesn't matter so much if you're trying to get the Republican nomination for governor. Bashing the cities is not going to hurt you at all uh, if you're trying to do that. 
And in fact, it might make you more popular among certain subsets of suburban Republicans who share those opinions. So on the one hand, he's infuriated uh, liberals and people who live in the cities. On the other hand, though, he's made himself a little more popular, perhaps, with uh, people who don't like the cities, people who agree with him, uh, who might support him during 2022. Hmm. And Mark, uh, what message is Bob Stefanowski also putting out there related to some of the other potential contenders uh, for the Republican nomination for 2022? Well, his message is the view from the shoreline of Connecticut and Madison is, is really pretty. Um, <laughs> look, Bob, Bob is doing what the president has done. He is, again, he is only speaking to a base. Um, there's nothing in that article that is going to broaden the Republican appeal. The Republicans are in third place in Connecticut behind unaffiliateds and Democrats. And if he thinks this is a way to broaden that appeal, I, I think he's he's wrong. Um, now, you know, I'm not going to get into detail in the piece because it was sort of a, a cut and paste thing of, of just sort of standard complaints about, about cities. He um, There's no policy initiative there there's there's no kind of nixon to china like hey look this is a, a, a an empathetic republican who's got some ideas for how to help the cities uh there was no recognition of the hard realities of hartford which is it's a city of 120,000 people at the core of a regional uh regional area of 1.2 million and there should be no surprise to, to people that if you basically concentrate most of the poverty in a region of 1.2 million people into an 18 square mile city of 120,000, um, a lot of the metrics are going to be pretty bad. Crime's going to tend to be higher. Um, poverty uh, is, is higher. Poverty in Hartford tends to run around 28, 29, 30%. And that's, you know, about four times uh, greater than what you have in the rest of the Hartford region. Um, you know, Bob, I think, was very deliberate in picking Hartford as the target because Hartford is a symbol of government as well as um, a, a city. You know, he could have picked on New Haven, whose crime more recently is a little bit worse than Hartford's. He could have picked on Bridgeport, which is run by a mayor who uh, is a ex-felon. There's all kinds of ways he could have approached this, but I, you know, I think he very deliberately chose Hartford. Um, and of course, he, it was a very provocative way to suggest that you know Hartford Current reporters are probably happy that the, the newspaper is closing its newsroom, so they don't have mm. to deal with crime. I mean, if you look at FBI crime numbers, um, you know, I mean, Nashville is is ranks much higher. Are people afraid to go to Nashville? You know, it's a major tourist attraction. Milwaukee's higher. Cleveland. Um, you know, it, Memphis, you know, these are places that, that people go to. So it, 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 and again, I'll just sort of circle back to, again, is what were you trying to do here? It, it does speak to a Republican primary voter, but it, I'm not sure how it positions him beyond that. I wanted to move on uh, before we run out of time and talk about the current John Lender, who reported on the state uh, using uh, COVID-19 emergency funds to hire a public relations firm to work with the State Department of Public Health during the pandemic. McDowell Communications, headed by Doobie McDowell, a former TV reporter, currently the co-host of Face the State, a news talk show on Channel 3. Uh, she hosted this show before Dennis House, who is now working for WTNH. Her, also her former partner at the firm, Steve Jewett, was an advisor to Governor 
Lender Lamont when Lamont first set up his administration. Uh, Colin, what was your reaction uh, to Lender's piece? So, yeah, I mean, basically what they're doing is paying $250,000, I think, for three months um, to rent the expertise of McDowell Communications uh, to do some special communications uh, around COVID, around vaccination, around stuff like that. In a way, what they're uh, doing is renting one particular employee of McDowell Communications. Her name is Maura Fitzgerald. I know her. She's a very smart, uh, very experienced in this area with some CDC training and stuff like that. Uh, Communicator. I mean, she's she's also. I mean, I really like Maura Fitzgerald a lot, and I admire her a lot. Ha- having said that, they're basically paying like eighty three thousand dollars a month for Maura Fitzgerald, and as much as I like her, I, I don't think that I don't think I would pay eighty three thousand dollars a month for me or Paz or Susan or anybody. Uh, it's just a, a lot of money. Um, I, I think sitting under the. But you know what? It's also and it was a no bid contract. It's going to uh, create some uh, political problems. Republicans are already chiming in. Uh, about that, uh, you know, this isn't like you know d- the delivery of some kind of medical services. This is communication and public relations. Why is it an emergency authorization? Why is it being done in this kind of executive order way? So there's sort of that, and there's a problem that sits under this. And I should say, Connecticut's a really small place, and for the political journalistic class, it's Mayberry. I mean, we all know each other. We all have personal relationships that slop into all kinds of things. And I certainly, you know, have known Dubia McDowell for very many years, and she was a very talented, very hardworking political journalist. And now she's a very talented, very hardworking communications person. And what she basically is selling to her many uh, very prestigious clients is access to the media is saying, you know, look, we can get your story into the media. Uh, we can you know, get you the story that you want to tell told and stuff like that. And it's a perfectly honorable profession. People have been doing it for years. There's a little bit of a problem, I think, with her hosting Face the State, which is at least notionally a journalism program. It's about journalism and we expect it to be conducted by people with journalistic missions. And it, it, you know, when this was first announced by Meredith, I mean, I don't blame Doobie. You know, I think this is probably really fun for her to go back to her roots. But Meredith, which owns WFSB, they shouldn't have made this decision. It's not just an erosion of the wall between public relations and journalism. It's a destruction of that wall, at least in this one tiny corner that's faced the state. Mm. And there's a bit of a problem. I thought Linder dealt with that pretty well. Mm. But Colin, I know Doobie has said that, you know, if there's a conflict uh, with someone being on, that she'll let co-host Kevin Rennie do the interviews. Is that enough? No, I mean, there's always a conflict. I mean, close to 100% of Doobie's clients want better media coverage and better relationships with the state of Connecticut, better relationships with Ned Lamont and Matt Ritter, whoever else. So at all times, I mean, it's, you know, she she has chosen a profession that is a little bit antithetical to journalism. You know, it's really more about helping other people get better coverage from journalism. So, I mean, at all times, uh, I would I, I believe anyway uh, that there there is an implicit con- conflict. I don't think you can recuse your way out of it. It's like being an air traffic controller and saying, I'm not going to land any Delta planes. Well, I mean, you, it doesn't work that way. Everything is kind of interwoven uh, in, in a way that makes it hard to recuse your way out of it. That's Colin McEnroe, host of The Colin McEnroe Show and a columnist at Hearst, Connecticut, here on The Wheelhouse with Susan Bigelow, a columnist for CT News Junkie, and Mark Pazniokas, Capitol Bureau Chief for the Connecticut Mirror. After the break, some thoughts from our panelists and Wheelhouse regulars. Stay tuned.
This is the Wheelhouse on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel, broadcasting remotely. As you've likely heard by now, this is the last Wheelhouse Roundtable as we rebrand uh, Where We Live, which is the other show I host. Producer Matt Dwyer invited several regular panelists to give us their feats of strength and airing of grievances. But before we hear them, I wanted to turn to our panel today. Susan, you first. Well, I think... uh my feet of strength, of course, I think is a pretty common one. Uh, just surviving 2020 is good. Uh, the other one, um, somehow I managed to pass 10 years as a columnist for CT Yay. News Junkie. And I'm so grateful to CT News Junkie and you know, Christine Stewart and Doug Hardy for uh, letting me blather on at their their site for so long. Uh, that, I think, is mine. I think my if I had to air grievances, I don't think I could just pick one uh, from the past couple <laughs> of years. So I'm just going to say I have grievances and they're just everywhere. So I'm just going to I'm just going to leave it at that. <laughs> well, you can always follow Susan on, on Twitter as well at whatever Susan. She does great work for the CT News Junkie. And we appreciated uh, having you on all these years, Susan. Thank you. Thank you. Mark Pasniokas. Mark, are you there? <laughs> Mark was joining us from the Capitol. I don't know if his connection. Uh... Oh, there you go. go ahead. Go ahead. No, on the opening day, I always think of Teddy uh, Roosevelt's speech about it's it's not the critic who counts. It's, you know, it's the, the credit belongs to the, the, the man or woman who's actually in the arena. So on opening day, I, I would have to say, you know, the feat of strength would be to all the people who run for, for public office in this crazy polarized time. Um, I do have admiration for them. My job does make me the critic who, who doesn't count in Teddy Roosevelt's eyes. But I think it's always good for us to be mindful of what the people in the arena go through to get there and, and what it takes for them to stay there. Mm. Thank you, Mark. And Colin, we've got about two and a half minutes. Oh, two and a half minutes. <laughs> um, all right. Well, my, no feet, my feet of strength, this is the last time we get to do this. So I want to do like ones where you hoist the jersey up into the rafters. And I think if I was going to do that for anybody, I would do it for nurses right, right now. Nurses yes. are amazing. You know, they just give it up every day. Uh, and, and they put themselves at risk during a pandemic. You know, they're, they don't make the big money. Uh, they're in it because they care and, and because they have some kind of gene that makes makes them want to take care of people. Uh, and it's, it is a remarkable thing. And they are, boy, they are the foot soldiers uh, of the war that we've just been in uh, to an amazing degree. They've got guts and they're smart, they're capable. If you have anybody who's uh, in any kind of medical crisis, you know uh, how much care they delivered and how much, how big a difference that they make. So that's my, I'm gonna ho hoist a nurse's jersey up into the rafters of, of you know, the Civic Center or something. And I guess uh, the other jersey I'll hoist up for a grievance, Norm Status. I, I really do think we have to retire Norm's number here on the last day here. He's now joined as a lawyer the lawsuit against Connecticut's public school masking rules. Mm -hmm. Uh, in trying to make the world a little less safe for all of us. So in a very short time, Norm has re represented Alex Jones, Fotis Dulos, and the anti-masker mask movement for Connecticut public schools. That's a grievance generation feat, generating feat, a grievance generating feat that won't be equaled for a long time. So this one's for you, Norm. We're, we're retiring your number or your ponytail or something. 
<laughs> Thanks, Colin. And this has been uh, fun for the last year uh, for me. I'm looking forward um, to starting fresh next week. But I have learned a lot from you, Colin McEnroe. So thank you uh, for, for being on this show as long as you have. Now, we want to get to some of the other panelists about their feats and grievances. Here it is. Uh, yes, this is Dan Har from Hearst Media. Great to be here on the final episode of The Wheelhouse. As it is that, and as we respect everybody on WNPR who's done all this work over the years, my feat of strength is going to be for everyone here at NPR and at all the news outlets all over the world who spent 2020 working in some cases, many cases on the front lines, photographers, producers, reporters, and that's especially true for our friends at the Hartford Current who are under siege from uh, what can only be called evil ownership and who have been doing uh, yeoman work here in Connecticut. As for the airing of grievances, I would send that out to anybody probably who's not listening to this show who is too apathetic to be involved in these issues. If COVID in 2020 into 21 doesn't change your outlook towards disinterest, nothing will. And I would especially aim that at those folks who are too apathetic to see when a despot is trying to steal democracy and freedom. Hey, it's Jonathan Wharton over at Southern Connecticut State University. Oh, I say feed strength is, is the fact that, hey, we're on to a new year, thankfully. And, uh, you know, obviously it's going to be a new program uh, with uh, where we live. Obviously, we're going to miss, uh, you know, Wheelhouse an awful lot, at least as uh, I've been hearing from my neighbors who are big fans and, and groupies of, of the show and the format, but I certainly alerted all my neighbors who, you know, follow you all on WNPR that, uh, you know, everybody's excited about what's going to be next uh, for where we live. And uh, hopefully a continuation of Connecticut politics will, will happen because we've got a lot of anxious people down here in Brantford, I know along the shoreline, who are still interested in knowing what is going on in Connecticut. So um, I, I think that, you know, for a new year, new format, um, this is the time to do it. I am Renny Folco. I direct the public policy and law program at Trinity. I would like to air a grievance um, and I will put it in the form of good riddance. And that would be to all of the public officials who willfully chose to violate their constitutional duty and to undermine our democracy. And for my feat of strength, I would like to give a huge shout out to all the doctors, nurses, teachers, grocery, delivery, and postal workers who risk their own health and in some cases their lives to serve all of us in this time of a pandemic. Hi, my name is Charles Benito Santiago. I'm a professor of political science at UConn. My grievance is January 6th. We generally celebrate three kings, my son and I. It's going to be a stressful day for me because I am really upset that Republicans are trying to sabotage this election. And when I say Republicans, I mean anybody who's supporting a certificate uh, or efforts to, to, to force Vice President Pence to not certify the electoral results. I'm concerned with this Georgia Senate race and efforts to interfere with the Georgia Senate race in an undemocratic way. And I am concerned with efforts to fuel or... or, or or fan uh, violence in Washington, D.C., uh, January 6, 2021. Hi, this is a uh, longtime wheelhouse panelist, Bill Curry. And uh, my, my feat of strength uh, uh, today is Connecticut Public Radio itself. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I've often thought about Connecticut. We're such a small state, and yet we have often so little sense of community. 
uh, you'd think it would be easier to achieve, but unlike Mainers and Vermonters and all kinds of other people, it's been hard to give our little state a sense of community. And I, I do think that the Connecticut Public Radio, more than any other institution that I know of, has done that. You've done it with improving the quality of programming here over the last couple of decades enormously. You've done it by connecting the signal statewide. It's the first statewide conversation Connecticut has ever had. Um, you know, when I, I would give speeches in Fairfield County and they would thank me for coming all the way down as if I'd flown in on the Concord. And really, I think public radio has, has brought our little state <coughs> closer together. It is also at a time in which our politics has gone, grown so false and coarse uh, uh, where, where we live and the wheelhouse have provided a place of decency and respect and logic and facts. Uh, and, and that too helps us bind together our democracy and our community. And so for bringing this state together and, and, and helping it to address our real problems like adults would. Uh, my, my feat of strength is, is, is this station itself. My, uh, my grievance to air is any politician or, or journalist who attempts to divide us and, and to undermine that democracy and that sense of community. That's a wrap. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. Today's show was produced by Matt Dwyer. Subscribe to Where We Live on your favorite podcast app to continue hearing conversations about politics and regular check-ins with elected officials. And next week, join me here as I talk to U.S. Senator Chris Murphy and take your questions, too. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Thanks for listening.